one of the things we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a break from long series. I think that every once in a while, we need to go back to the basics and kind of work out a little bit on some of the things about Christianity that we know, but maybe sometimes aren't so good at articulating. Last week, if you heard me talk about us being a little bit lazy, for example, in citing biblical passages, we're very good at paraphrasing that somewhere in the mass 66 books of the Bible, it says something like, and then we throw out a word, where I think it'd be much better for us to be able to cite and pinpoint where and why and the context and to actually state it accurately. Now, we're going to do a little bit of that tonight, but I want to step out of all of the high-level topics that we've been covering and go back to the basics for a moment and link some of those topics in so you can see why we're covering these topics, how they fit. I'm also mindful that some of you are going to be speaking to others about Christianity. Maybe it's this summer on a mission trip. Maybe it's just that you know somebody who isn't a Christian yet. Maybe you know somebody who's a struggling Christian. Maybe you have a chance to sit at a coffee house somewhere and have a dialogue with somebody. And we don't always know how to best articulate the basics. I just want to do that for a couple of Sundays and just kind of air those out. Okay. What I want to do tonight in that is ask some questions that people want to know. I'm going to give you a highlight of some of the questions I'm going to give you at the end. Think about these questions. Kind of like think about them for a second. Here's what the questions are going to sound like. But aren't Christians hypocrites? Aren't Christians conservative and backwards? Don't Christians deny science and physical realities of the universe? Aren't Christians judgmental where the Bible says, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge at all? Aren't Christians anti-gay, anti-choice? Don't Christians support the oppression of women? Aren't Christians arrogant to believe that Jesus is the only way? Are Christians being insensitive when they attempt to convert others to their religion? Doesn't the Bible contradict itself? Don't Christians disagree among themselves about what's true? Why are there so many denominations? How can we even know that the Bible's accurate in the first place? And if it is, isn't it all just subject to interpretation? These are the kind of questions that I want us to be able to answer. These are the kind of questions that people will ask you when you're having a discussion about Christianity. I want to put those questions up front to you because we're going to get to them towards the end. Maybe they'll be, we're going to get to them next week, maybe. But I want to start off with some questions that people ask even at a higher level. Before we get into those, what I call the objections to Christianity or the reasons I shouldn't believe, let's talk about some of the things that you might encounter with somebody who's more open to the gospel and some of the questions that they may have. How do I know that God exists? Start with the most fundamental question that some people wrestle with. How do I know that God exists? I want you in all of these questions to put yourself in the position of what would you say to someone who's, who's going to be asking this? And by the way, I'm not going to suggest that everything I say tonight is the complete answer. I'm going to cover like 10 really big questions in half an hour or so. I'm just going to kind of give you a tidbit of why we believe what we believe. How do I know that God exists? Most people you talk to, if you listen carefully to their life story, they'll already have a sense that there's a God somewhere. A God of some kind. Maybe they don't articulate him as Jehovah or as Yahweh or the God that we know in the Bible, but they just feel like there's something there, a physical presence, a being, a higher power. Most people spend a lot of time looking for it, arguing. So one of the first things that you can talk to somebody about is, well, you yourself seem to be on a search for it. There must be something there, don't you think? 
You can also look around and use arguments and observations about the creation itself. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. You just look around and you see the creation itself and think, this gives us a clue that maybe somebody created this. Or nature itself or science and all those things that are wrapped up in that discussion. It's kind of an entree to that we spent 12 weeks covering science and religion. We did that for a reason, because people want to know. People want to know, what does this all mean? You know, part of what we studied was the failings of evolution. Not because we wanted to be just critical of it, but because in understanding the failings of evolution, we saw that even the evolutionists were starting to search for a beginner because they couldn't find it on Earth. And while they're searching for some outer space alien being that planted life on Earth, we could offer up to the person we're talking to, isn't it just as plausible that there's a God? I think in every one of us, there's an imprint of God in our heart. We just sometimes don't know exactly what he looks like. So sometimes you'll encounter this question, how do I know, even know that there is a God out there? I think if you start to dialogue with people about their own experiences and some of these issues, they'll probably acknowledge that, yes, okay, there might be something out there. I do believe there's probably something greater than us. And that becomes the first beginning point and a building block where you can build the discussion. Okay, but if God does exist, how do we know which God to follow? There's all these different religions. How do I know which one is right? Is it just the one you're born into? That's just kind of what you fall into? That's just yours? Are we Christians because we were born into Christian families or because we went to some camp when we were in junior high and raised our hand and suddenly now we're Christians? Is there some truth to what we believe? You'll hear a sub-question under this, don't all religions lead to God? That's really the subtext of this, because that would be convenient. That would be great. You go, I'm not really sure which God to believe in, but here's the good news. The good news is you can't go wrong, because no matter what you pick, you're okay. All roads lead to the top of the mountain theory. But you guys remember we had a series on this where we studied all of the different major religions and cults around the world. What did we find? Well, the first thing we found is that they themselves contradict one another. So without even considering Christianity, all of the world religions and ideas, they all differ. So if there is a God, you'd have to think he's a pretty mean God because he's got everybody confused and contradicting each other. At least that's what you would have to believe if you believe that every road was a road to God. You remember we studied the Buddhists who said, well, there really isn't a God, versus the exact opposite in the Hindu religion. All the different millions of gods that they subscribe to. Break it down again into the differences between just people who believe in sorcery, witchcraft, all the different things that we looked at. Even the cults of Christianity, the ones that deny this and deny that, we all seem to disagree. So I think we can safely throw out that all roads seem to be a way to get to God. So how do we know that maybe our religion is okay? How do we test Christianity? How does it stack up to other religions? I'm going to suggest to you a couple things. One is that you look at Christianity, it's unique in its historical accuracy. The historical record that we have about Christianity from people who are not Christians, the record that's still preserved. The Bible's unique also in the number of prophecies that it predicts that have come true. Not just one or ten or twenty, but thousands of prophecies that the Bible predicts have come true. And not prophecies also that are vague and, and, and like, in the end there will be destruction, but like prophecies that are so specific that the odds that mathematicians calculate 
are like 1 in 10 to the 20th power that some of these could ever be predicted thousands of years before they occur. If you remember, during one of our series, we actually covered some of these prophecies. We went through 10 prophecies, all of which the odds were greater than 1 in 10 to the 20th that they could ever be predicted by a nomadic people that wrote them in the desert at the time they were written. Why is that important? Because the Bible can authenticate itself outside of the text. It can say, this is the word of God and here's the proof. These prophecies will come true. No other holy book stands up to that test. No other book even comes close in making specific prophecies that are that close. We also have the testimony of people like you who are believers. Your own lives testify to the truth of Christianity. The things that happen in our lives when we speak to people, every one of us could pull out a story of how God impacted our lives. When you see changed lives, it doesn't have to be miraculous changes, but you see changed lives, changed people, and you have a chance to testify. And there's also the fruits of what the church has produced. It's controversial. Some people will think the church has done a lot of bad things over the years. It's true. But if you look at Christ's body and what it does do, how often it does triumph, there seems to be a lot of truth flowing through it. It's kind of related to the next slide. Go to that, Anthony, if you could. It talks about what makes Christianity unique. Why do I choose Christianity in light of what you just said? We're kind of narrowing it down, starting with, how do I know there's a God? How do I know which God? Why Christianity? We talked about the historical record, the biblical prophecy. Look at the biblical accuracy. Look at its message, by the way. What makes Christianity unique? Find a religion that has the message of Christianity. Most religions are about you trying to be a better person. Christianity starts off with the presumption that you'll never be a good person. That you've sinned, and the penalty of sin is always going to be death. Christianity is unique in having someone do the work for you and saying that grace is what saves you. Atonement by Jesus Christ is what saves you. That it's not about you running this treadmill of trying to check off all these things and reaching this higher state. But salvation is not dependent on what you do, because you can't do anything, except accept this free gift of Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. Christianity is unique in having God himself come down to earth to die on the cross to save mankind. It's unique in its method, the way that God accomplishes salvation. Look at all the other world religions. They're about you doing something to earn. They're seeking favors with God. Somehow there's a transaction going on where we're giving, God is receiving, and maybe if we're good enough, we'll be okay. Most religions, if you ask them if they have a concept of heaven, they'll tell you it's kind of like a scale. You weigh good deeds and bad deeds and you kind of work it out. Or you have some sort of karma going on where you're trying to find out, did I have more good karma or bad karma and how does that affect me in the next life? Christianity says, none of that. You can't earn it. You're already in a state of sin. It's a free gift. You don't have to transact with God except to say, I accept the gift. I accept that you paid the price. What are the basic tenets of Christianity? What does Christianity really say? Why is it so different from everybody else, as we've been saying? Here's some of them. God has always existed and is without beginning or end. It's interesting. Think of how many religions have God kind of like becoming God, 
wrestling with people to become God, having a war among the gods, like some sort of thing other than a God who has always existed, is eternal, is everlasting, is unchanging, is perfect, is holy, infinite in all his good characteristics, without blemish, without sin, without struggle. This is not a God like in other religions who has these dark sides. This is a God who is perfect and holy in every way. Yes, he hates sin. Yes, he's wrathful at times to jealously guard his creation, but only in a righteous, righteous way. Another tenet of Christianity is that God is comprised of three persons, the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three distinct personalities, and the mystery is how they're one God. That perfect relationship between them in my opinion, causes them to desire relationship in every kind. And that's why the next tenet of Christianity starts like this. God says, I want to dwell in relationship with someone else. We become that someone else. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Genesis 2.4 lays out God's plan In Eden, I want to dwell with my people, my creation. God creates. He creates lots of things. He creates the heavens, the earth, the seas, what's in the seas, the birds, the animals. But then he says, it's not enough. This leads us to God's next provision. He creates mankind and to guarantee that we have the capacity to love and freely love of our own desire, he gives man free will. Man takes that free will in order to choose to love God. But we can also choose to turn away. The next tenet of Christianity is simply this, that while we were dwelling in the presence of God, even in the first days, Adam and Eve, we chose and used that free will to sin against God. And from that moment on, we were banished from Eden. Not just the people in the beginning in Genesis, but everyone. Romans 3.23, you guys know this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Every one of us knows that we've sinned. Even people that we're talking to who are exploring the claims of Christianity can sit and understand that they have done wrong. Not just a wrong to hurt somebody else, but a wrong that's greater than that, a wrong that seems to violate a larger code than just the ones that we create for ourselves. Kind of a universal code that's embedded in us. We know that we've done that wrong. We also inherit the original sin from our ancestors. We're tainted by it. We can't get away from it. All have sinned. Here's the dilemma. God promises us that the penalty for sin is death. From the beginning, God made this clear to them. And we know that it's repeated in Romans 6.23, if you want it, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.12 also tells us that just as sin entered the world through one man, being Adam, And death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. The penalty is death. So God has the dilemma. What does he do with people who have sinned? Step back for a moment. Look at it from God's perspective. He desires so much to be in a relationship with us. He creates us with free will knowing, knowing that we're going to choose the fall. And he weighs this heavily on his heart from the beginnings of time. If I create man and give him free will to love me, he will fall. And I will have to come up with a way to redeem mankind. 
His redemption is found in Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus Christ is because Jesus is the only person who fulfilled the requirements to save us from the death penalty. Everyone who sins deserves the death penalty. There's one person who made it throughout their life on earth, who lived fully human, did not sin, did not deserve the death penalty. And that was Jesus. And so Jesus could voluntarily, and it was a choice on his part, voluntarily say, Lord, I will take the cross and die in their behalf. Nobody else qualified. Everybody else that you could point to and say, Lord, I don't want to die. Put this person in my place. The Lord would say, I'm sorry, that person has sinned too. All of you have. If you want someone to take your place, find me someone who has not sinned. The Lord knew we could not find that person. And that's why he gave us his son. Voluntarily chose to give us his son. And the son voluntarily chose to take our place on the cross. That transaction now is complete because Jesus did everything. But the Lord knew that we would fall and he knew that he had to provide the salvation. No other religion has the uniqueness of God doing all the work for us. There's also another truth that Jesus knew. That his holiness is so intense that we could never enter the presence of God without being cleansed of our sins. A holiness so intense that if anyone were ever to enter his presence in a state of sin, they would literally be annihilated, the Bible says. Moses tried to see God, and God said, no, you can't see me and live. You won't live if you look at me. Isaiah has a vision of him, and in the vision, Isaiah realizes that just glimpsing the Lord, he's going to be annihilated. And the Lord has to act to give purification to Isaiah in an act of symbolic salvation so that Isaiah is not annihilated. So when we wonder why is salvation so important, why do I have to be cleansed of my sins? Because at the end, we know that all people will be judged. And you have a choice. You can be judged based on the book of life or your works. It's really simple. The Bible says in the end, all the nations will be judged. And books will be opened. And if your name is found in the book of life, i.e., if you believe in Jesus Christ and he's paid the penalty for you, there's no condemnation. You proceed forward into heaven. But if you're one of those people who decided that you were going to do it on your own, you didn't need purification, now you get to face the Lord in a state of sin. The Bible says we're sent away into a lake of burning fire. And I know people hate the doctrine of hell in the church because it sounds so scary, it sounds so archaic, it sounds so medieval. But the Bible's very clear. That God's sense of justice requires punishment for those who do not pass the test of salvation. And it will be eternal suffering. Those are hard truths, but that's what the gospel message really boils down to. Our God knowing from the beginning of time that the creation was going to fall. And that few will be saved. Few. But the Lord decided in his wisdom that saving a few was still worth it. In every way. Because those few who make it will dwell with him forever in heaven. One of the things that Christians and non-Christians struggle with is it sounds so easy to get salvation. Like all you have to do is say, okay, I believe in salvation, give it to me, and then you can just do whatever you want. There are some people who tell you that that's true. That you could accept Christ's sacrifice 
And because it's a free gift given of grace, nothing on your part is really required except accepting it and believing in truly in your heart that he did die for you and saying, yes, I believe and I accept it and I take this gift. I'm going to say that's one camp on this side of the spectrum. There's another camp on the other side of the spectrum who believe that once you accept that, you now have to reverse earn it. Like you get it, it's like all of you have an A in this class, but it's yours to lose, and then you've got to keep working to keep it. And then there's a camp that's in the middle, and I think this is where most Christians are, who understand that salvation is one thing, but it does really require true repentance of your heart, a true change. That doesn't mean that you become a, a holy person. I mean, you strive towards holiness, but none of us will ever be holy. None of us will ever stop sinning. But your heart changes and you realize that you have been bought for a price. You've been saved from eternal punishment. You've been like at the last minute snatched up basically. And you think of it from the perspective of, man, if you were saved and snatched up at the last minute from the burning coals of this earth, how thankful would you be? How much would your heart change? How much would your life change? You think I was lost, but now I'm found. I'm going to do everything different. And when you see that repentant spirit, you know almost that the person has really gone through a true transformation. But here's the thing. For some people, they will only get salvation. Think of the thief on the cross who had no time to do anything but turn to Jesus and say, "Uh, I do believe in you. In the last moments of his life, Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. Does that mean that all the Christian life is about attaining salvation? Well, for one thing, for anybody who hears this word, it's the minimum that you would want to get because certainly the alternatives are not good and if for no other reason you want salvation to escape the fires of hell and to spend eternity with God in heaven, even if you don't even know what that's like, that's a good enough reason to believe in Jesus Christ. It's a good enough reason to accept that he is the only way to get out of your sin and maybe you just woke up today and realized that you were a sinner and you didn't even know it. It's good enough for that purpose. But if you're like most people who accept Christ and still have time to live, not like the thief on the cross, then there's a second element of Christianity that's much richer, and that's living the Christian life. Living the Christian life is about realizing that now that I am saved and have been bought for a price, what is it that you want me to do, Lord? Because now I realize that this life isn't about me anymore. This life isn't that I was born so I could conquer this world. You start realizing this world's going to end. Your life is certainly going to end, whether it ends before or after the world ends. Probably your life before. But either way, your life is limited. You start realizing that God created you for a purpose. Not like you just happen to show up and go, what can I make out of this world? Or what can I make for myself? It's like, no, I was created for a purpose to commune and communicate and dwell and love and relate to God. Partly in this life, where it's still kind of misty, we don't really see him that clearly. But then, of course, in the kingdom to come, we're going to be directly with him. So then you begin this journey called the Christian life of figuring out, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to be doing? How do I live to be more like you? Those people, I believe, when they get to heaven, two things will have affected their eternity. I think it will affect them in several ways. One is, we know that people who get to know Christ now, our memories aren't going to be erased. When we walk into heaven, we'll know that much more about them. 
thief on the cross wakes up, he's in heaven, he's like, <laughs> okay, like I, he's starting from scratch. You might live 50 years knowing Jesus and you show up in heaven and you know that much more about him. There's people like in the book, of, in, the, in, in Genesis, we know Enoch walked with God so much he walked right into heaven. That guy knew God intimately that for 300 years he walked and talked to God. So he's at a more intimate level than we'll be. So that's one way your eternal life will be, will be affected. Two is we just finished a huge series on money and what to do with money in the kingdom. One of the things that we learned is that what we do with our money on earth and how we transact it here on earth, how we give it to the Lord, how we use it for the Lord's kingdom, almost converts it into something into heaven called treasure. We don't exactly know what that treasure is. Is it real money that we spend? Is it bigger houses? Is it more time with the Lord? Is it What is it exactly? We don't know. But a couple things we do know, Jesus promises us that in the end, he will come and he says, my reward is in my hand. That he will, because of his sense of justice, save everybody who believes in him, but he's not going to treat them all equally. We talked in our series on heaven that there's a second judgment that comes after you pass the judgment of salvation, where you actually make account with the Lord. He uses financial terms that you will make account to me for what you did. And we see parable after parable where the master returns and makes account with the servants. So again, the quality of your eternal life might be affected in another way, whereas, hey, I'm safe, I'm saved, that's great. But you may get there and he may say, Ryan, 50 years of faithful servanthood that you gave to me and you lived so simply and gave it all away and did everything you could to build your life for the kingdom and not for yourself. Let me show you the rewards you have here in heaven. Look at the verses. John three sixteen. we all know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's as simple as that. God's promises are not subject to change. So even though we know this verse so well, you see it on bumper stickers, it doesn't mean the verse is any less applicable. It's not subject to change. It says, what is it, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and he will purify us. Okay. Same thing, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we're never going to be in a situation where we're out of sin completely. Yes, God wants us to strive to be holy. Paul encourages us, just as he is holy, be holy. I mean, look at just how loving God is that he makes his son who is perfect the subject of all sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be righteous to God. The blameless, the perfect, the pure God basically wastes him for us. You know, faith is more than just sometimes belief. Although in our English Bibles, we mix those up a lot. You know, faith is really putting something at stake in the belief. Like your life. Like I'm going to change. I'm going to do something different. You know, like you might know the way the demons know. And you might actually believe just because it's convinced you. But you've got to see that change that comes about in your life. How do I become a Christian? First, you acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to God. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You realize that he's making an exclusive claim. No other religion is true. I'm the only way. This is very unpopular. Most people don't like it. It just happens to be true. And truth by itself has to be arrogant. If it's the truth, I'm sorry. Two plus two will always equal four. You might disagree. You might have other numbers in mind. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. And Jesus is making the same equation with you. I am the only way. 
I'm telling it to you not as a prophet. I'm not telling it to you as a guy who's making up a religion. I am the Lord who is eternal, and I am the only way. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no man can boast. Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans three ten through 12, it's written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this is citing a prophecy in the Old Testament. Jesus comes to fulfill that and say, but I will make you clean. Titus 3, 5 through 6, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here's what you do. You pray to accept Jesus' sacrifice and his gift of eternal life. It's right there. It's in front of you. There'll be people who are listening to this sometimes, and they'll be like making, trying to make a decision. Do I do it? Do I not? You know what? Salvation is at your door. Open the door. And there'll be people who will turn away from it. God knew that. And it grieves him. It grieves his heart. John 5.24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. There might be follow-up questions, and there usually are. What if I continue to sin? When I was in Russia, I was praying the prayer with a woman. She was elderly, and she agreed to pray with me to receive Christ. She probably was like 70 or something. And she kept saying to me before she was to pray to prayer, she kept resisting, saying, but it doesn't matter, because as soon as I receive Jesus, I'm going to sin again tomorrow, aren't I? So what good does it do me? Well, we know that Christ's blood covers all of our sins. That doesn't mean that we don't repent. It doesn't mean we don't confess. It doesn't mean we, tr- we don't try and struggle with everything we have against sin. But the Lord knows that we will fall continually. And his salvation isn't one of those things where it only covers up to that moment and you've got to keep renewing it. I mean, yes, you can keep seeking forgiveness, which is biblical. But if you happen to be driving down the road and all of a sudden you just like, boom, an accident and go, hey, I forgot to pray. Oh, oh, oh. That means I got 12 sins left against me. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus' atonement is good enough for all sin. Is salvation the end goal? Is that the whole thing for the Christian life? No, that's the beginning. Jesus would be happy enough if you just got that, though. The way he was thrilled to bring the thief on the cross with him right away. If you got nothing else, get that down. But of course, this begins a whole journey of discovery into who Jesus is and who God is continually so that you're becoming that person that eventually you will perfect when you get to heaven where there is no more sin. Whether you believe it either way, the one way to look at it for us as Christians in a very tangible way, what else you got to do? He's bought and paid for your life. He's got a whole plan of the things that you could do while on earth. The least of which is probably telling other people about him. The Christian life begins at that point and, and progresses over time. It's just the beginning.
The devil has an easy job, guys. Jesus set it up so he says, I am the only way. The devil's thinking, oh, this is easy for me. All i got to do is distract these people. Get them to go any direction but that. I'll like, send them to another religion. I'll chase, get them to chase money. I'll get them to chase like sexuality. I didn't even chase their own sin, their own guilt, like all sorts of stuff, their own desires, their own pride. I'll make them believe in themselves. I'll do anything other than believe in Jesus. And for a lot of people in the world, if you look around, it seems to be working because they've believed in their own religions, their own constructions, their own creations, their own pride. Ultimately, they never even have the time or the opportunity to look for Jesus. If I were the devil... I think that the first thing I would do is I'd think, yes, I've read the end of the book and I know what's going to happen. Knowing that God loves each and every person, I'm going to try to take as many away from him as possible. You know, like if I'm going down, I'm taking down as many as I can with me. So I think that he does have more urgency as time goes on. But I also think that if you look around the world today, I think I'm not saying the devil's winning, but we know that as we get closer and closer to the end times, the devil's going to look like he's winning. Because we're going to enter times where the world revolts against God and Christianity and a lot of things that are going to happen. We are getting to a point where Christianity is definitely losing its grip. Where people are believing in anything but Christianity. These days I don't think that people are believing in other religions as much as they're believing in themselves. They're justifying their own sinfulness. They're setting up a world that has rules and laws and morals that look good but are our own creation. They don't flow from God. So we're constantly shifting them and justifying them and making ourselves feel good about them. And the devil's sitting back thinking, good. Because while it looks like everything is good, they're missing Jesus completely. There are some people who don't even believe in the devil. There are some people who don't even believe he exists, which is totally wrong and not biblical. Okay? But then you have Christians that are on the other side of the aisle that I think believe that everything is the devil's fault. We ourselves sinned. Yes, he tempted, but we fell. I believe that even without his help, we could do enough destruction in God's kingdom and to each other on earth because we're sinful. But that's not to say he doesn't fan the flame. He may not be the central cause of fanning every flame, but believe me, he's got the biggest vested interest in it. And I think at times he sits back and lets us screw ourselves, which we do a good job of. Because remember, even though God removes the like God removes sin, He forgives us. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. There's one thing that God doesn't do sometimes, and more often than not, He doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. When we sin on other people and we cause the world that we live in today a world of hunger, famine, problems, wars, even just hatred among each other, strife, social injustice, whatever you want to call it, you could say that, yeah, the devil's behind some of that, you could just as easily say, and I'm more prone to say, that's the consequence of our sin. That's the consequence of us not caring for our brothers and sisters and doing the way that God would want us to do. So sometimes it's just our sinfulness alone. Sometimes it's our collective sinfulness and all the consequences. And yeah, in the background, running around hooting and hollering and fanning the flame is the devil and his demons, who who the Bible tells us they're fighting an ongoing spiritual battle around us. And really, lives and souls are at stake. We just don't see it. And of course, the devil's happy to have it that way. He's happy to have everybody not see it. What is the meaning of the Christian life? Or what is the meaning of life as a Christian? But what is the meaning of the Christian life 
Here's a couple just quick observations. I know we could spend like, like nine weeks on the, on the Christian life, but here's just some things to just kind of whet your appetite. Number one, what is the chief aim of man? Westminster Confession says, the chief aim of man is to glorify God. Glorify God in every thought, word, and deed. If you want to know what's the meaning of life, well, if you're Christian, the meaning of life is to glorify God in everything you do, in every act, every thought is to glorify God. You want a little bit further clarification? God gave us the great commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. You can work on that one for the next 10 years. Love one another in the same way. What is love, Lord? Love is this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You want to be like the Lord? You want to strive to be more like him in the Christian life? You guys got salvation taken care of? Good. Work on that one for a while. Done with the great commandment? You're glorifying God every day. Now you've loved everybody equally and love everybody in the way Jesus loved them. Let's move on. How about the Great Commission? Jesus said, go therefore into the ends of the earth and preach my gospel. Some of us have not done that yet. The ends of the earth could be the end of your block, but a lot of times it really does mean a faraway nation. Jesus knew that a prophet was never accepted in his own hometown He knew that us moving to other countries had an impact because people would listen. He told us, go. Micah 6.8, what's the Lord require? To love mercy, love justice, to walk humbly with your God. Some of those things that Micah 6.8 says. There's a kind of another list of things you can do. Finally, if you start to understand in very mature terms what Jesus said when he says, the kingdom is at hand, you start to understand that you live in an exciting time ever since Jesus came on earth. Part of the kingdom exists today on earth, and part of the kingdom is yet to come. The kingdom on earth is your time now to bring people to salvation. And the kingdom of God dwells in heaven at the same time, waiting for us for the future kingdom that we're going to enter into. We just spent time studying that. So that's the meaning of the Christian life. At least just here's just some observations. What does it mean? Those are just some good ones right there. Glorifying God, the great commandment, the great commission, looking at what the Lord requires us from Micah. You can break it down into a couple of ways. The first is to literally do what the Lord has created his old angelic host to do, which is to, yeah, worship, praise, and glorify him because he is worthy and deserving of all glory. That's like at, a, at, a, at one level. The next is to live our life in a way that continually shines and points back to him so that people can see his glory reflected through us in what we do. Because ultimately, if you want people to believe your testimony, you want people to believe that there really is a God in the universe, if you want people to believe that Jesus is the only way, those actions speak a lot louder than words sometimes. You know, it's few times in our lives where we get to speak our witness. Most often, people observe our witness. Sometimes they observe it from a distance and we don't even know they're looking. Sometimes our close friends observe it. They're going to look at us and see, what is the character of your life and how does God do it? So when we glorify God, it's like we're pointing right back to him. And when we reflect that glory, our witness rings true. You know, if you talk to somebody and they tell you about the future kingdom and how great it's going to be and all these kind of things, and then you look at them and they're living for this life, something doesn't seem congruent with that, you know? Like, we don't even believe there's a kingdom to come. And we're hanging on to everything, you know? But if our life reflects and glorifies God the whole time, 
you know, you're almost like saying, I'm, everything about me is really trying to point back to the Father. It gives us credibility when we speak about the kingdom because we ourselves have so given up our own lives that we really are waiting for it to come. Maybe somebody that you talk to will become a Christian and they'll ask you, like, what do I do next? You know, after they accept Christ, you might pray with them. And there's plenty of verses on how to do that. Pray with them and talk to God. Encourage them. Show them how to pray. Do they have to come to church? I don't think they have to go to church. The problem is, if you meet somebody and they accept Christ and they have no discipleship, which is an important part that follows... They're going to be like a baby who's just been born at the hospital that you leave on the side of the road. They're not going to make it. They're going to fall away very quickly because they're going, to, they're going to need help. They're going to need the basics. And they're going to look around and there's nobody there. We don't do people many favors when we usher people into the kingdom and then leave them to die by the roadside. Remember, Jesus said, when I sow the seed, some of it will fall in a certain area. And he says that we talked about this last week, that those are the people who will fall away during trials And what he was really saying was during times of persecution and hardship. Those are the kind of people that, you know, like they've heard the word, they've accepted it, but as soon as hardships happen, they're like, hey, help me out. Somebody, I've never known what to do in this point. And there's nobody around them. So a church is a great place for discipleship. But at least you encourage them, pray, talk to God. Maybe here's a Bible. Start by reading one of the Gospels, just simple stuff. There's new believer Bibles out there that walk people through some of the difficulties of becoming a new believer. Maybe you can work with them and say, hey, how about we read together some stuff and keep exploring? Worship with God's people, that's part of going to a church. Becoming part of a body. I do believe it's biblical that Christians belong to a church body. That just being out there on your own, just like, you know, is not biblical. We're supposed to be part of the body. But that's part of going through the Christian life as well. Maybe somebody at first is going to really be opposed to that. Maybe you're going to be part of the body for them until they're more mature to be able to accept. But the Holy Spirit may be moving and they're looking for willing people. That's you. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to act and touch their heart to bring them to a place of repentance and belief. So think about those other questions, though, because next week we're going to cover them. But aren't Christians hypocrites? Aren't they all conservative and backwards? Don't they deny science and physical realities? Aren't Christians judgmental, even when they're told not to judge? Aren't they anti-gay, anti-choice, anti-women? Aren't they so arrogant to believe they're the only way? Aren't they insensitive when they go travel around the world trying to convert other religions to their religion? Aren't they culturally insensitive, politically insensitive? Doesn't their own Bible contradict itself? All the different denominations. How do I know which one to believe? Don't you Christians disagree amongst yourself as to what's true? How do I even know the Bible's accurate? And if I did know it was accurate, isn't it all just subject to interpretation? I'm going to cover that next week so that you can have some way of at least responding to some of these questions. I actually toyed with the idea of just handing the mic out and having you guys respond to them next week. Just like randomly picking one, go, okay, you respond to number two, you have three, you have four, and just give me your response. You're in the coffee shop, the person says to you, but isn't it all subject to interpretation? What's your answer? It's good to cover the basics once in a while before we dive into our next topic. You guys know that in a couple of weeks we're going to start dealing with biblical inerrancy and canonization, all that stuff as we study the Da Vinci Code. 
in preparation for the movie coming out. And there'll be a lot of people who have even new excuses for not reading the Bible. Ah, oh, but I heard it was all random how they picked the books, and I heard there was all this politics going on, all this stuff, right? You know, in the end, when you're dealing with somebody who's going to give you every excuse in the book, your best bet is to just close your eyes and pray. You're not going to convince someone in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Has to touch their hearts. There's people out there who will argue with you forever for reasons not to believe. But in the end, you've done your job if you've at least presented them the opportunity. Okay, So that's why we covered the basics tonight. Next week, we'll kind of close that up with some stuff. All right, let's pray. Lord, I feel like we just ran through an entire survey course on Christianity in the Cliff Notes version and really didn't dive deeply into any one place. But Lord, take what we've offered tonight and use it for your purposes. You promise us that your word does not return void. And Lord, I pray tonight that we have just invested enough time to listen and appreciate how we can teach your gospel message to people. How we ourselves can brush up on the basics and remember some of the fundamental things that we ourselves may have not really remembered. And Lord, as we move into more difficult topics in the few weeks that are coming ahead, uh, I pray that you would remind us that knowledge is important, but that you truly desire a changed heart. You truly desire a relationship with us. You desire that we love you as children love their father. And that's ultimately what pleases you more. That we might know you inside and out like a book, but Lord, if we don't truly love you or if our heart isn't changed towards you, then it's all for nothing. And even when we witness to other people, Lord, we can impress them with our knowledge, but most people will be impressed with our hearts, with the glory that we reflect back to you, Lord. Truly living lives that have been purchased, not ones, Lord, that have just purchased fire insurance. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.